Scripture. On uh, 1 Chronicles 29, verses 10 through 22. And if you don't have a Bible with you, there should be a pew Bible in front of you looking just like this. And it's on pages 356 and 357. 356 and 357. 1 Chronicles 29, 10 through 22. Therefore, David blessed the Lord in the presence of all the assembly. And David said, Blessed are you, O Lord, the God of Israel, our Father, forever and ever. Yours, Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty. For all that is in the heavens and in the earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head above all. Both riches and honor come from you and you rule over all. In your hand are power and might, and in your hand it is to make great and to give strength to all. And now we thank you, our God, and praise your glorious name. But who am I, and what is my people, that they should be able thus to offer willingly? For all things come from you, and your own we have given you. For we are strangers before you and sojourners as all our fathers were. Our days on the earth are like a shadow, and there is no abiding. O Lord our God, all this abundance that we have provided for building you a house for your holy name comes from your hand and is all your own. I know, my God, that you test the heart and have pleasure in uprightness. In uprightness of my heart, I have freely offered all these things, and now I have seen your people, who are present here, offering freely and joyously to you. O Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, our fathers, keep forever such purposes and thoughts in their hearts of your people, and direct their hearts toward you. Grant to Solomon, my son, a whole heart that he may keep your commandments your testimonies and your statutes, performing all that he may build the palace for which I have made provision. Then David said to all the assembly, Bless the Lord your God, and all the assembly blessed the Lord, the God of their fathers, and bowed their heads and paid homage to the Lord and to the king. And they offered sacrifices to the Lord, and on the next day offered burnt offerings to the Lord, 1,000 bulls, 1,000 rams, and 1,000 lambs with their drink offerings and sacrifices in abundance for all Israel. And they ate and drank before the Lord on that day with great gladness. Let's pray. Father, when we read of sacrifice in your word, we think of the great sacrifice of the Lord Jesus on the cross for our sins, and we thank you for that. As your word goes forth this morning, Father, may it find place in our hearts. We pray for the guidance of the Holy Spirit. We pray that you would be with Toby as he leads us today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. It has been about... Twelve and a half years since last I stood behind a pulpit 
to preach to so many Tennessee Titans fans. <laughs> oh. Well, enough of that. All right. <laughs> Before we launch into our study this morning, I did want to remind you about tonight's uh, prayer meeting. Um, many of you committed uh, on our commitment cards a couple of weeks ago to, uh, apart from providential hindrance, to be at the prayer meetings. Our goal is to have 75 of us gather tonight and to gather every first Sunday evening of, of, of this year. And so I, I hope that if you are unhindered, that you will be here tonight to pray. In fact, we will gather in here, because when 75 people show up, Lord willing, we won't be able to fit in the fellowship hall. We will have to be right here. So we will gather here tonight, and I, I hope that you'll be able uh, to come. This morning, we actually begin a four-week series on Christian stewardship. Um, typically, our pattern is to work our way through a section of the Bible or through a book of the Bible. Now, some people mistakenly just calling doing successive passages expository preaching. Expository, if you're new to us, and maybe that word is not familiar to you, expository preaching, that idea... The idea is that the Bible sets the agenda for what is said from the pulpit, that the point of the Bible should be the point of the sermon. And so that can be done successively through a book of the Bible, like we just finished 2 Corinthians last week, and Lord willing, at the beginning of February, we will begin 1 Samuel. But for this month, uh, you, expository preaching doesn't have to be successive like that, so long as what the Bible is saying is setting the agenda. So we're not going to just talk about stewardship in general, and I'm going to hurl verses at you like darts. There are various places in the Bible where we can go to understand this idea, and so that's what we'll do over the next four weeks. Now, you may not, may not be familiar even with the idea of stewardship. A steward, the word steward comes from the Old English. It basically means a keeper of a house or a guardian of a house or caretaker of a house. You see, the, the steward was in charge to, 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 he was to take care of the property and the finances of the owner. So the steward may live in the house he takes care of, but it's not his house. He may eat the food in the pantry, but it's not his food. He may take the household money and go to town and buy supplies, but it's not his money. The goal of the steward was to use the owner's property and finances under the direction and guidance and supervision and to the pleasure of the owner. So that's what a steward is. That's stewardship. And when we talk about Christian stewardship, what we're talking about is the notion of being caretakers of God's things. Now, I don't know if you would have realized this or not, but actually God's design from the beginning was that humanity would be stewards. God makes Adam and Eve in His image in Genesis 1, sets them down on His earth, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, but He says to them, they are to have dominion. They are to care for it. They are for, to care for one another. And then Adam is set down in the garden by God. And do you remember God's charge to him in the garden? It was, 
The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. He was to work the ground so that it would be productive, and he was to keep it. He was to guard it. In other words, I mean, it was God's garden. It wasn't Adam's garden. It was God's garden, but God set Adam down and said, take care of my stuff. Take care of my garden. Adam was to be a steward. Typically, when we talk about stewardship, when pastors come to the topic of stewardship, we're just, we talk about money, right? We talk about generosity. We talk about giving. And frankly, self-examination in the area of generosity and of giving and our general attitude toward money is needed. And it's needed often. I mean, why else would Jesus, uh, in the Sermon on the Mount, make money the number one rival of allegiance to God, right? Matthew chapter 6 No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Now, in many ways, you could put anything in place of where money is, right? You cannot serve God and blank, anything. But it's interesting, isn't it? Jesus takes that thing, takes money, takes the thing which seems to have the greatest, one of the greatest alluring powers in the world, isn't it? I mean, the love of money is the root of many forms of evil. And says this one. Watch out for this one. No discussion of stewardship would be complete without talking about money, so we'll get there, but we won't start there, and we won't focus exclusively there. We'll talk about other things as well. We'll talk about time. We'll talk about our uh, abilities, our skills. But I want to be clear with us all because it's helpful to remember that stewardship isn't about how we use our time. Stewardship isn't about how we use our money. Stewardship isn't about how we use our talents, our skills. Not precisely. Stewardship is about how do we honor God with His gifts. That's a whole different ball game. Stewardship isn't about what are you going to do with your stuff. Stewardship is about what am I going to do with God's stuff, the things that He has entrusted to me. And so that in talking about being a steward of the gospel, Paul asked this question, what do you have that you have not received? What is it? What is it that you have that you haven't received? Well, the answer is nothing. You have nothing. It all comes from God. That's why discussions of Christian stewardship must begin with God. And that's why we are beginning in 1 Chronicles chapter 29. The context of this is the collection that was taken to build uh, the temple for the construction project. In the verses preceding this, David sets uh, this example of extravagant generosity, and he challenges the people to do the same, beginning in verse 2. So I have provided, this is David speaking, so I have provided for the house of my God so far as I was able, the gold for the things of gold, the silver for the things of silver, and the bronze for the things of bronze, the iron for the things of iron, and wood for the things of wood, besides great quantities of onyx and stones for setting, antimony, colored stones, all sorts of precious stones and marble. Moreover, in addition to all that I have provided for the holy house, I have a treasure of my own of gold and silver. And because of my devotion to the house of my God, I give it to the house of my God. Three thousand talents of gold, of the gold of Ophir. Seven thousand talents of refined silver for overlaying the walls of the house. And he just goes on. And then he ends with this question, Who then will offer willingly? 
consecrating himself today to the Lord. And the response is overwhelming. It's a combined 133,000 talents of gold, silver, bronze, iron, along with precious stones. Now, that doesn't mean anything to you. you, you like just, I'd like to have one talent. You know, I'd like to be able to do something well. That's not what this is. The talent was a measure of weight. And if you remember in Matthew 18, Jesus speaks about this unpayable debt that will never be returned, and it is 10,000 talents. And this is an offering of 133,000 talents. Still doesn't help us, right? So I want you to imagine our uh, budgeted giving for 2020, which is somewhere in the over $600,000 or so. In today's valuation, 133,000 talents would be meeting that budget a thousand times over. It's quite an offering. I wonder how the ushers got out of the building carrying so much. But this overwhelming generosity. And then David responds to the generosity by leading the people to turn their hearts to God. And his response should be our response. The point is, is that human generosity should prompt praise and thanks to God. That's the main point here. We're only going to focus on verses 10 to 13. We're not even going to get through the whole thing. But the point of these first few verses is that human generosity should prompt praise and thanks to God. So let's just think about it. First, generosity prompts praise to God. Notice the first word in verse 10. Therefore. In other words, the author is telling us that what David does is based on what the people have already done. But did you notice what David doesn't do? He doesn't name parts of the temple after the biggest givers. He doesn't let them know that he'll be stamping out plaques with givers' names on it to put on the pews. He's not going to put their names on stickers and put them inside the new hymnals for the, for the temple. He actually doesn't praise the people at all. He praises God. You see, these folks aren't just giving to create a worship space. They're giving to the God who's created everything. That's what they're doing. In fact, all truly Christian giving is to God. That is the final destination of our aim is to please God. We have to remember that. Giving isn't first about budgets or salaries or building maintenance or even missions. Giving is first and foremost about worship. Our giving must be aimed at God. In Matthew 25, Jesus tells this story about, uh, you, or many of you will be familiar with it, uh, the, the, the separation of the sheep and goats and on the last day. Are you familiar with this? And when he talks about what is commendable in, the, in, in those who will be rewarded, he says this, I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you, or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer to them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of my brothers, 
You did it to me. Not even for me. To me. Every hour spent by the believer visiting the sick, visiting those in prison, is an hour given to God. Every jacket taken off the back of a Christian and put on the one who has none is a jacket given to God. Every bag of groceries given to those in need is a bag of groceries given to God. Every extension of hospitality to the stranger, to the orphan, to the widow, to the single mother, to the student in need of housing is given to God. As you did it for the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Also in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says in Matthew 6, When you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Just another underline that all giving is really about God, isn't it? God is the only audience that matters, and God is the only recipient we're aiming at. His glory. God is worthy of every gift that Israel gave that day. Every gold earring, every silver bracelet, every bronze kitchen utensil, every precious stone, every bit of iron, all of it. He is worthy. You see, the, essentially the, the, the offering taken that day was a wordless praise session. And all David does is look at the wordless praise session and say, well, let me just say out loud what we're all saying with our gifts. Blessed are you, O Lord our God. And why is he so worthy? Well, David just gives us a whole host of things, doesn't he? Greatness belongs to God. He says greatness belongs to God. He speaks of God's distinction. God is distinct not only from His creation, but from all other gods. His eminence outranks all. He is great. David writes in Psalm 145, Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised, and His greatness is unsearchable. Meaning, his great, we will never figure His greatness out. We will never get to the end of it. You all know about pie, right? Not the delicious dessert that we're all longing for, but I mean the number. The irrational number, 3.14159 and so on and so forth. I say and so on and so forth because that's as far as I can get in the number. There was some tech firm that figured out pie to like the two trillionth digit it took 23 days and a thousand computers to get it done. And the number never repeated itself. What David is saying, you will sooner get to the end of pi than you will to the greatness of God. He is great. Power belongs to God. All this is in verse 11. Yours is the greatness and the power this is strength. This is especially military prowess. I mean, many times God is called what? The Lord of hosts. He is the warrior who brings His army. There is no enemy that God cannot overcome. He doesn't even need His people. He'll send angels in the middle of the night to ransack the city. He'll confuse and ambush so that the enemy basically turns in on itself. This is especially 
Uh, this is an especially poignant claim in the ancient Near East where if you won in battle, your God was victorious over the other God. Now, that may cause someone to raise their hand and say, now wait a second, Israel doesn't win all their battles in the Old Testament. What's going on? When Israel doesn't win its battles, it's not because God is inferior to the other gods. It's because He is punishing His people for their unbelief and their disobedience. He is bringing a temporal judgment to demonstrate to them, you cannot live without me. You cannot win without me. You will not make it without me. But in the end, nothing will stand against the power of God. Do you remember what Paul writes? If God is for us, who can be against us? Right? Glory belongs to God. That's next in the list. This isn't the glory that we often read about that speaks of the importance or weightiness of God. This glory speaks of His magnificent beauty. There is none more. You are beautiful. The song says you are beautiful beyond description, too marvelous for words, too wonderful for comprehension, like nothing ever seen or heard. He is beautiful. He says victory belongs to God. Now, I want to be honest with you and say that I'm not completely sure why victory is the English word that's chosen here. It's used in several commentaries, but... Uh, several translations, I mean. But the word elsewhere, in fact, if, if my memory is correct, I should have written it down, but if I'm wrong, I'll come back and tell you. But if my memory is correct, every other time this word is translated in the Old Testament, it has to do with being everlasting or to speak of forever. I believe what David is saying is that he's speaking of God's eternality, his permanence. He is the everlasting God. He is eternal in His being. He is eternal in all His perfections. And by contrast, we, well, we're just a mist, aren't we? We're withering grass. We're fading flowers. You, I mean, you feel the fading in your body even this morning, maybe. We bloom for a season and then it's gone, but not God. He is forever. He is eternal. And certainly the victories that He wins with His great power is eternal. We see that in the end, don't we? Where the only one left standing in the end is God and the people that He has saved by His glorious grace. Majesty belongs to God, keeping on in verse 11 to just go through it. This means that God is awe-inspiring. He takes our breath away to consider God, to meditate on who He is, and to do so biblically and truthfully is to be left speechless. And what is it that David says points to the majesty of God? For all that is in the heavens and in the earth is yours. There is not a molecule in the universe. There is not a cell in your body that doesn't belong to God and bend its knee to God and perform every activity that it performs to the glory of God. And that in and of itself kind of takes your breath away, doesn't it? He is majestic. Oh, Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. The kingdom belongs to God. Keeping on, yours is the kingdom, and you're exalted as head over all. 
God rules, God reigns, God is sovereign over every square inch of His universe at every millisecond of human history. So now, I mean, it just keeps piling on, doesn't it? God is this. This is His. 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 God is great. God is powerful. God is glorious. God is beautiful. God is majestic. God is awe-inspiring. God is king. God is perfect in all His ways. God is eternal. And can I tell you what just takes all of that and just takes it over the edge of amazingness into something you can't even describe? This God that David is describing pays attention in kindness to finite, fallible, sinful, rebellious creatures like us. That's why they're building the temple. The building of the temple isn't just a place to gather. The, the, building, the building of the temple is a reminder of God's gracious condescension to commune with His people, to be with His people, to provide atonement for His people. But friends, the temple that they are building is not an end in itself. The temple they are building points forward to the ultimate gracious condescension of God in Jesus Christ. In Jesus, the great God has taken on common flesh. In Jesus, the powerful God is born as a weak baby and sympathizes with the weaknesses of living in this world. In Jesus, the majestic, beautiful, awe-inspiring God, according to Isaiah, had no form or majesty that we should look at Him, and no beauty that we should desire Him. In Jesus, the King became a servant. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. In Jesus, the eternal God has stepped down into time. He has made His dwelling with us. In Jesus, the victorious God surrenders Himself to murderous, evil men. In Jesus, the gloriously beautiful God was disfigured through torture and crucifixion so that Isaiah writes, His appearance was so marred beyond human semblance. It didn't even look human anymore. Beyond form, and His form beyond that of the children of mankind. Isn't that amazing? This God, this great and powerful and glorious and majestic and perfect and eternal God took on common, weak flesh, was killed by murderous, evil men, disfigured by them, so that He may refigure us so that He might forgive our sin, so that we might have an atonement that is permanent. You see, this God doesn't just pay attention to us. He pays the debt that we owe. And He brings us into His family. I don't know what kind of God you have heard about in your life. But this is the God of the Bible.
The God of the Bible is not a distant God who is only waiting to punish. This is a God who will punish all evil, but graciously says, if you will come to me, come to me in faith, trust in Jesus Christ, I will save you. Jesus is the temple where we meet with God and commune with Him as His people. If you have not turned from your sin and trusted in Jesus Christ, I would urge you to do so even today, even now, to bow your head where you are and surrender yourself to Him in your heart. If you want to talk more, I would love to talk with you more about that. Any member of this church would love to talk to you more about that. But David praises God in response to generosity. There, giving expressed truth in God that his mouth echoed. There have been several times in our married life that Susan and I have been given gifts or money or provision beyond our imagination. And the only thing we can do is praise God. That's what generosity should do. God is worthy of our praise and our gifts. But generosity doesn't just stir up praise here. Generosity also prompts thanks to God. That's the second thing. Look at verse 13. And now we thank you, our God, and praise your glorious name. Now why the distinction? Why does David thank God. Well, look at verse 12. Both riches and honor come from you, and you rule over all. In your hand are power and might, and in your hand it is to make great and to give to all. He thanks God because everything is from God. Look at what he talks about. He talks about riches. Every resource and possession is from Him. The pennies in my pocket. I wish I had some so I could show you that I had pennies in my pocket. The pennies in your pocket, the, the dollars in your bank account, the paycheck you receive, the car you drive, the gas in the car that you drive, the shirt on your back, the roof over your head, every asset you have, great or small, it is all from the Lord. It's interesting that as a parent, uh, whether it's with toddlers or with teenagers, we often come up against this, this four-letter word. Mine. You know, this toy is mine. I, I don't want him in my room. I don't want her to have any of my candy. Now, if you were snarky, you might remind them that you bought the house. The room is not theirs. You, you pay the rent or you pay the mortgage or whatever it is. Grandma's probably responsible for the toy and grandpa's probably responsible for the candy. But the point being, they're living off the generosity of others. Let me ask you a question. Isn't it amazing how clear it is when we think about our children that way and how fuzzy it gets when we start to think about ourselves? 
Oh, but this is mine. But that's mine. That's my house. Yeah, we have to use common language. I understand that. And to walk around saying, this is the car that God has entrusted with me for as long as the car lasts, which doesn't seem to be very long at this point. That's much more cumbersome than to say, this is my car. But the Christian can never have as the forefront of their minds, this is mine, that is mine, this is mine, this is my family, these are my children, it's my house. We're living off the generosity of another. You see, this entire offering that was taken from Israel came through God's provision. Probably a great deal of it came through plunder that they had gotten over enemies as they fought various battles along the way. It was actually God's victory that ended up providing for them. David recognizes God as the source. Look at verse 14, all things come from you and of your own we have given you. He doesn't tell God, you're welcome. He says, thank you. Who, who am I to be able to give anything to you, God? Verse 16, O Lord our God, all this abundance that we have provided for building you a house for your holy name comes from your hand and all is your own. It's all his. Riches come from him. And then David back in verse 12 and 13 say, Honor and greatness, it's in his hand to make great, comes from the Lord. Positions of leadership or authority, things that are respected or revered or have influence and significance, whatever it may be in your life, it is from the Lord. I mean, you may talk about earning a promotion at work, a new position with greater responsibility, but it's from the Lord. Strength comes from the Lord. He says that it is in your hand to to make great and to give strength to all, the capacity and energy to do work. Whatever energy it is that you have to do, whatever it is that you're going to do today, is from the Lord. Deuteronomy 8 says, You shall remember the Lord your God, for it is He who gives you the power to get wealth. He doesn't just give you the wealth. He gives you the power to get the wealth. He doesn't just bring the paycheck. He gets you up out of bed. He gives you the strength you need to do whatever it is that you do. Even when it comes to the skills that each of us have to do the jobs that we do, the intellect, the capacity to organize or to build or to manufacture or to make things beautiful or to lead people or to develop technology or to teach or to serve well, all of it is from the Lord. It's interesting if you go back one, uh, a couple of books to the book of Exodus in the building of the tabernacle, God calls a couple of men to be the construction and design leaders of the, of, of, of the building of the tabernacle, Bezalel and Oholiab. And what they're supposed to do, according to Exodus 31, is to devise artistic designs, to work in gold, silver, and bronze, in cutting stones for setting, and in carving wood to work in every craft. And how are they going to do that? Well, Exodus 36 reminds us. Exodus 31 does as well, but Exodus 36 says it again. Bezalel and Oaliab and every craftsman in whom the Lord has put skill and intelligence to know how to do any work in the construction of the sanctuary shall work in accordance with all the Lord has commanded. Do you have any skill? 
Whatever level of skill you have and whatever it is, the Lord put it there. Whatever measure of intellect you have about whatever it is that you do and whatever it is that you learn, and the Lord put it there. But much like Bezalel and Ohaliah, God didn't just put it there. He put it there to be exerted for His glory and for the good of other people. Think about the implications of, our, of this for our stewardship, especially in ministry. If we, use our ti- if we use time to visit and minister to others, if we use skill to serve others, if we use wisdom in counseling others, if we use money to make ministry possible, what should be our response? Thank God. We thank God for the gifts. So when someone comes up and says to you, X, Y, Z, you know, they're so grateful for how you spent that time or the gift that you gave or, or the way you came and fixed that whatever it is in their home and whatever it is, what, what your response as a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ should be to thank God. Whatever time you spent may have derailed how you thought you were going to spend time that day, and yet God gave you the time and the energy to do for His glory and for the good of another. God supplies it all. You see, without receiving from God, we're not able to give to God. We can't just conjure up things to give Him because we can do nothing apart from Him. And that's why, I mean, generosity prompts praise, generosity prompts thanks. Human generosity should prompt praise and thanks to God. Praise because He's worthy of the gifts we can use for Him, and thanks because He's given us the very gifts that we use for Him. Stewardship isn't about how we use our stuff for God. Stewardship is about honoring God with His gifts. Stewardship of our time, talent, skills, money, every bit of our lives is about God. It begins with God, 